Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Youssef, and here you are listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the House Culture Podcast, hosted as ever by me, Matt Rouse, the Managing Editor at House Culture. Thanks once again for choosing this show and letting us into your lives for the next hour or so. We put all of this together from a place of love for the club culture community, so we really do appreciate all of the support that you give us. We've also seen a huge crew of new followers to House Culture in the most recent weeks. So if it is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome to the club. We are House Culture, a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Instagram is our home at House Culture Net. So if you haven't already, grab yourself a spot on that virtual dance floor with over 100,000 other party people. And for those who want to dig deeper into what this podcast is all about, we have a massive back catalogue of episodes now featuring heavyweights from the golden era of house, like David Morales, Danny Tanaglia and Paul Oakenfold, all the way through to the new school of talent currently lighting up our dance floors like Dam Swindle, Luke Van Dyke and Purple Disco Machine. And if you want to get a behind the scenes look at this thing we call house, you can always listen to our episodes featuring the co-founder of iconic record label Strictly Rhythm, Gladys Pizarro, Pikes Hotel creative director Dawn Hindle, or the face of Clockwork Orange series of events, Danny Clockwork himself. There really is something to satisfy all tastes. So let's crack on with this one, shall we? In this episode, I sat down with a legend from Liverpool, a DJ who first gained fame from a competition win, was then tasked with bringing house music back to legendary nightclub Cream, and has now gone on to deliver a permanent legacy, not only in his own city, but in the world of house music itself. It can only be Youssef. In our chat, 
You'll hear how from a very young age, he was already having adventures in dance music. We used to kind of go to like Shelley's and Stoke when we were super young and I'd disappear for days on end and like, you know, end up in different parts of the country. I remember I went to Stoke on a night out and I ended up literally in Gloucester. How a competition win launched his career in house music. Bedroom Bedlam was a monthly DJ competition in music magazine. People would send them mixtapes every month. It was great and they selected my tape they did give me a gig at Ministry of Sound. So my first ever gig was to play the box at Ministry. And I was pretty nervous, but I took kind of maybe 50, 60 of my crazy friends down there. And why his own series of parties have become such a phenomenon. The ethos of circus has always been the same. Um, obviously these days it's, a, it's more of a juggernaut. Just then it was just an excuse for me and Rich to kind of have a party in Liverpool with our mates and get a bit wrecked and then have a party in my house which two days afterwards, which was... The, always the best bit to be honest <laughs> i hope you enjoy this one as much as i did this is youssef house culture hi youssef it's great to have you on the house culture podcast today so thank you for making the time for us you have been described as an unstoppable force in dance music, smashing your way into the scene from your own bedroom to the world stage as DJ, producer, promoter, and more recently, an activist for the nightlife community. However, before we talk about all of that, you grew up in Liverpool and you've described your childhood as tough, crazy, painful and hilarious. Can you tell us about how you first discovered music within all of that and the kind of influence that it had on you? Yeah, I guess. I mean, because, uh, you know, I grew up in a bit of a um, free-for-all household, shall we say, people around all the time, and the, which meant there was parties and music from like a very young age. But also simultaneously what was happening was an older brother was into new romantic, like 80s synth pop, mm-hmm. and which kind of led into early hip-hop and then early acid house. And I just kind of followed his lead. And it's really interesting because he's not into music now at all. You would never know that he's probably my biggest influence. No way. Um, but it was, it was my brother, teenage brother, Tony, mm-hmm. um, the oldest one, who kind of like led, led the path for me, really. And yeah. I got very quickly into the, into the the hip-hop breakdancing scene and wanted to kind of be be a breakdancer. So that that's what I did. But I was so submerged into the movies and the music and the albums and the moves and and everything. And I very quickly gravitated to thinking, I want to be the DJ. And that was like, no you know, that was eight. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Such a young age. So you, you were like in those movies and things, because this is the thing around, you know, we've spoken to a lot of, um, you know, younger DJs now who are coming into the scene as well, as well as people that have been stalwarts of the scene from for a long time. And, you know, there's that difference between learning how to DJ. If you're not old enough to get into a club and you're listening to music, how did you kind of understand what a DJ was doing from that young age? What kind of media were you consuming to to teach yourself? I, I guess it was just watching what they were doing on turntables. Mm. You know, in like there was a movie called Breakdance, the movie, mm-hmm. uh, which came out on like, you know, late, in the 80s when I was super, super young. And I was just fascinated you know, by by the characters in the movie and then watching the DJ in the background, which happened to be Grandmaster Flash, mm-hmm. so, you know, um, and what he was doing and his adventures on turntables. And I was just I was just interested in, in, in how this works. So that's what I used to do with my kind of 
the old classic with the two tape cassettes and like you know looking at get the old small violin out but i never had any money to be able to kind of get get decks and i wasn't exactly too sure but mm. i guess even before i managed to get any decks i kind of got into the acid house scene mm-hmm. as well and i was like that's still what i want to do so i was always trying to kind of find ways to get my own music by you know i was the type of kid that had a job from the moment i could stand as well you know i mean it's it's crazy because my son's nearly nine mm. and when i was nine i had a milk round i had my own job and i would i would go to this like dairy in like liverpool mm. and stand there at like 4 35 in the morning on the off chance to get like help the milkman out mm-hmm. just to earn my own money and then go to school which is yeah. mental because it wasn't nuts. that long ago <laughs> Uh, you know, but that was just kind of like I just get up in the morning, you know, just go and then take myself to school and come back. Wow. Um, but it was just that desire to kind of have self sufficiency, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. be able to kind of make my own choices from a very very young age. That's kind of led to anything that I that I do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and then my brother took me into early raves in Liverpool and and Southport and. And Ainsdale and anywhere in the surrounding regions, which, which I was way too young to go, but it mm. was pretty loose there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, at least if you were, what was it like 14 or 15? Yeah. You know, it was like some of them are just not safe. But anyway, I didn't know who I was listening to, mm-hmm. but I just loved the music. And, yeah. I, and I do carry that into these days because if I go to, for example, I was in Panorama Bar a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure I would have known the person personally who was it was playing, but I just didn't want to go anywhere near decks because I just wanted to be a, a raver, a clubber, yeah. and just kind of go go with the go with what's coming out of the speakers. Yeah. Uh, similar when I listen to drum and bass. Now I, I don't want to go up because I don't I don't want to get lost into kind of all right, mate, and then make a decision mm-hmm. based upon it's made. Do I like it a bit more? Yeah, and. Yeah. It, that that is from those moments in the early days where I had no idea, but just this make me feel good. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And I think I think that is something that people don't spend enough time on. They they kind of decide whether it's um it's in some sort of genre or click mm-hmm. rather than like, does this music make you feel good? Yes or no. Yeah. And that's it for me. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great summation. I mean, you're you're telling a familiar tale to me. Like, I've got an older brother, age fourteen. I'll be going out to raves with him and doing something very similar. And it's like that you discover like a secret, and you know, suddenly all of these people are together in the dark, and they're only going to be together in that one place, that one night, as yeah. one thing. And then you know, you all go your separate ways, and you've all lived that night together. It's such a such an amazing feeling, like you say, to continue that and to hold that with you. It's something that I'll never forget and never lose. And I think you know, people need to get in touch with that a lot more. Absolutely. And you know, for for me, you know, I've always loved an adventure. It's like you know, I one of my best feelings I ever have is not knowing what's around the corner. Mm-hmm. I simply want to. I don't want to know in advance. I want to just kind of have like, let, let's go and see what happens. And even that comes from 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 those days, and just having the—I I guess it was spontaneous, yeah. but really it was more like my situation was like lawless. Mm-hmm. So it's, I can kind of just go off and wander and do what I want. And like what we, we used to kind of go to like Shelley's and Stoke when we were super young, and mm-hmm. I'd disappear for days on end, and like you know end up in different parts of the country. I remember I went to Stoke on a night out, and I ended up literally in Gloucester. <laughs> <laughs> after after like a three day kind of uh, convoy, that's not even a figure of speech. And then 
sometimes we wouldn't even go out and we would go to Nutford services at like four or five in the morning and all the clubbers from across the northwest would mm-hmm. kind of congregate into Nutford services. Someone would rock up with a set of decks and would just stand there all until, like, you know, 10, 11 in the morning just having it in the car park. <laughs> yeah. I was only like 15. Loved it. Yeah, amazing, yeah. amazing. And so, so tell me about um, like putting together a record, collect, like earning money. You've had a job since you were uh, like since you could stand, like you said. You're you're getting money together. Were you using that to buy music and buy records and saving up for decks? Like, how did that kind of move for you? <laughs> the, the deck story is like ridiculous. You know, people probably wouldn't even believe. But I'll, maybe I'll quickly I'll quickly tell you. But and. Even the money I was earning, I was using it to kind of get around, you know, just go and see my friends, be social, you know, treats and eats, really. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily uh, buying music at, at that at that stage. Actually, tell a lie. I, I was massively into into kind of like to pop. Mm-hmm. Thinking back, I was a huge Madonna fan when I was thinking thinking about it. But for, for for a period, I had mm-hmm. posters all over my wall. What era of Madonna was that? Was the, the Vogue era? Yeah, it, it was. Vogue and before, uh-huh. yeah, all, all those all those albums, which yeah. interestingly I was really into, but not into the albums after mm-hmm. that much. But I think it was it was down to they were all kind of funk based, yeah. You know, maybe like now Rogers and Petty Bone, mm-hmm. uh, people like that, and that's because it was essentially from black music, yeah. And that's why I was naturally drawn to to that sound, and I, I always have been. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's why I was a fan. It's nothing to do with the fact that she had like nudie boasters <laughs> in the 12 inches, which, which to be honest, I probably still got upstairs somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, you know, but I, I guess I used to try and buy music as as and when. But when I really got into the electronic music scene, it was to do with, um, you know, I wanted a set of decks so much. I really, really wanted to. Mm. The, situation at home where there was no chance whatsoever of getting a set of decks so i quickly skip over this basically what 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 happened was one day i went to school one of my friends wayne he Mm. just goes look i believe you're into djing my dad's got a set of decks do you want to come and see them they're for sale Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was a brand new set of 1200s in this beautiful case in this with mixer and a mic import and the sound and it was in in this coffin case it was amazing Mm -hmm. and he goes well do you want to buy them and I was like, yeah, I'll take it. And literally, I remember it was £600, but it may as well have been like £6 million. Yeah, yeah. And it was a Tuesday night and I was I couldn't sleep, couldn't sleep, couldn't sleep. How am I going to get this money by the morning? Mm-hmm. What am I going to do? Anyway, I went to sleep, woke up. <clears throat> and when I woke up, there was a there was a brown envelope letter. It's probably the first letter I've, I've ever received on, on my doormat. Mm-hmm. I opened it and it was a cheque for £650 for me. Mm-hmm. And what had happened was about a year previous, when I was doing doing my GCSEs, I was out having a break from revising, and me and my friend Danny were just kicking a ball in the street, and he tripped me up and went flying, and whatever happens. And anyway, yeah. I, I ripped my face to shreds. If you look closely, there's a scar there. Ah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I ripped my face face to shreds, uh-huh. and be- what happened was it went through legal process and all that stuff, and it was a compensation check. Yeah, it's serendipity. Uh, serendipity, whatever yeah. you want to call it. The next morning, so I suddenly had this money, mm. and the very next morning, and then you know, it was like, wow, when I bought decks, yeah, and I practiced. I knew that okay, this is a sign. Yeah, practiced for literally ten hours a day until yeah. I was better than anyone else in the neighborhood. Yeah, so I mean, like, and that's like 
learning to drive in a Rolls Royce, like starting off with some Technics decks. Oh, no, is, no, no, no. I'd, be, I'd been going to other friends' houses that had kind ah. of uh, like belt-driven decks yeah, and things yeah. like that. I'd kind of learned the basics, mm-hmm. playing like Gabba and, you know, early Acid House and Hardcore and a- anything I can get my hands on, really. Yeah. So I'd spent like a year or so, because I went back to school, you see, to do my second year in sixth form, and they're like, look, man, it's just not for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're coming in and you're interested in other stuff and just 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 so i had to take a year out before i went to college and that year i went to my friend's house kev's every day and practiced on his decks and then by chance i got my own decks off the blue and that was that incredible incredible and so you're honing your skills and what were your first kind of gigs like when you started playing out and how did you get those were you like handing out tapes like banging on doors like what what was your career starter the full bit um when i went to college i just made myself self-appointed entertainment manager in the (laughs) students union i mean i literally rocked in on the first day it was like look where's the students union do you need someone to run the events? And they're like, but, 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 and I was like, I've got an idea. And then I kind of put this together and, st- and just said, this is what I can do. And I've never done it before. Mm. Um, and then I started running events at this place called the Paradox in Liverpool for mm. the students. It was great, actually. <laughs> Worked out really well. But thinking back, the club had a really, really good deal because I would bring like 2,000 people and they would <laughs> give me like the warm-up slot, which for like 25 quid and a crazy lager. And I was like, in <laughs> but really they were probably making 50 grand <laughs> thinking about it <laughs> anyway uh, but i loved it so it was those little gigs and you mm. know just learning how to kind of play on a sound system is very different from playing in your bedroom yeah but then obviously i started to see things a lot more seriously and i was buying music and i was going to college and i was on the dole and i was collecting money and did, did, and just was able to afford records mm-hmm. and then I was able to afford time to do mixtapes yeah. and then as you mentioned earlier eventually I started going to I started going to cream every week and mm-hmm. um really honing my sound as in look at you know it's, it's black music based which mm-hmm. is house music mm-hmm. uh and then it led into like a little bit of techno but really it's always anything with the funk yeah listen to like Derek Carter Roger Sanchez mm-hmm. Paul Cox uh, David Morales yeah you know, at cream and that's where I that's where I went and then giving out those tapes at cream mm-hmm. to anyone that would listen, which looking listen back listening back to those tapes, some of them are really specialist and some of them kind of move around sound wise, but eventually I found my groove. Yeah. And then I won the bedroom bedroom competition. Yeah, this is what this is what I want to talk about. Like so during that year, like when you were going there as a punter uh, what was that club like and that transition from the dance floor to the booth for you? Like, what what was that feeling like? Again, this is another kind of crazy, crazy moment. Because I used to go to the Cream every week and uh, along with probably Paul Bleasdale, James Barton, who were like kind of on the other side of the fence. Mm-hmm. And I was definitely on the dance floor. I, I knew that club probably as well as they did. You know, I just loved it. I was obsessed. Yeah, I'd go four times a week. Sorry, four times a month, and then I'm the online. So five times a month, I would, I would I would be there, yeah. You know, learning it, getting to know it, and stuff. But then again, I remember when Cream had this kind of refit, and they kind of changed the the booth and the sounds. This amazing Steve Dash sound system, and had these floated turntables and a crossover and a and a, a rotary mixer. Bear in mind, I'm just a punter. Yeah, I I go home and I'd be like. And I couldn't sleep sometimes worrying about how I'm going to use those decks. Yeah. <laughs> Even though, like, it was years away. Mm, mm-hmm. Possibly, you know, they, they 
didn't probably didn't even know I was a D, I was learning not to be a DJ. Yeah. But then again, I, I had this kind of like image this in my head that one day James Barton and this and the, the other partner Jim King mm. are gonna stop me at this bar called the Lyceum in Liverpool and Bold Street and they're gonna ask me to be resident. I was like, I was so I was so convinced. And then obviously things moved forward and mm-hmm. then I won the bedroom bedroom competition. Mm-hmm. And I started to get gigs at Ministry of Sound and then Renaissance and then Pasha and Ibiza mm-hmm. and all those things. And things started to kind of t- t- to take shape and gigs started to happen. My diary was suddenly full, even though I was still working in Littlewoods simultaneously <laughs> on, on the children's underwear section, which is really <laughs> weird. <laughs> That's a different story. Um, but yeah, I was, I was an assistant buyer in the Littlewoods uh-huh. <laughs> shopping catalogue. Yeah. But, um, but then, lo and behold... There was happened to be in the Lyceum building on a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah, him walked James and Jim King and asked me the question. No way! I mean, it's it's like you've actualized this. You've asked the universe for it, and it's delivered. It's incredible. Look, I am not spiritual in that capacity. I'm mm. certainly not religious, mm. and I can only go on my personal experience. And I'm certainly not like any sort of like cosmic nonsense and all that. I'm mm. much more into hard work than sitting there and hoping for the best. Yeah. But there's been certain occasions on more than five times in my life where I've just kind of can much more than five times where I've just kind of willed it. It literally happened that way. Yeah, I think with it, it's it's a tool that should be used sparingly. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're kind of thinking, okay, you know what, I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind something this weekend, or I want to go to this place. I think you know, don't take the piss. Yeah, <laughs> but if you really believe in something, yeah. and you 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 feel it's going to make a positive contribution one way or another. I think I think it works. I don't know. I mean, like I say, I'm not into cosmic spiritual bollocks, but I can only go my experience. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a good it, like you say sparingly. It's I think is the key. Everything in moderation, even moderation. Um, <laughs> I mean, what was there? so? I want to rewind a little bit to uh, so obviously you know we've talked about the cre- the cream thing and like how that came about and you know the the brilliant um, you know actualization of that. Them asking you the question in the Lyceum. Um, just rewind just a little bit to to the bedroom bedlam competition. So like for listeners who might not. No, um, it was a was it, it was a monthly competition, wasn't it? It was a music magazine, yeah. um, and just take us through that. Like, okay, Bedroom Bedlam was uh, a monthly DJ competition in Music Magazine, and Music Magazine was at the time it, it, it was at least rubbing shoulders with with Mixmag for kind of readership um, around the world, and, and it obviously it was physical copies. Now they used to have this competition where people would send them mixtapes every week, every month. And we'd literally get thousands all over the world. And other winners are Marcus James from Renaissance, mm-hmm. um, obviously famously James Abila. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I was the first one that kind of was the pinup of it, I guess, mm-hmm. really, um, because the, the the mix was even to this day. It's on my SoundCloud. If you want to listen to it, it's still yeah. great. It's raw. I've listened to it a few times over the years, and I had a flick through it this morning. Yeah, it's yeah, it's still yeah. great. Yeah, it is. It is, and I remember doing it in my bedroom, thinking, "Okay, this is all right. This one." And obviously, all I had was at the time two decks, a little play and record, like hi-fi stereo. Mm-hmm. Just got on with it with it on, a, on a crappy mixer, but it, it's um, it came out really well. But from I won that, and it was it was Felix and Basement Jacks and Lottie that selected the mix, mm-hmm. and Ben Turner who 
was the editor at the time. He's gone on to do all sorts like IMS, for example, Richie Horn's manager. Mm-hmm. Um, he's done lots and lots contributed to, to the scene, like like a few others. But he he picked picked it as well. So it was great, and they selected my tape, and I was very happy. I remember working in Littlewoods in the in my little desk, mm-hmm. thinking, "Oh shit, look at this! Wow, this is this is kind of cool." Uh-huh. Um, and as always, I'm, I'm very cautious not to think okay i've won the lottery let's go i was like all right let's just take it easy yeah but they did give me a gig at ministry of sounds so my first ever gig was to play the 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 booth uh in the box at ministry yeah the first gig and i was pretty nervous but i took kind of maybe 50 60 my crazy friends down there so it was like a semi-full dance floor from from the off <laughs> yeah so it was all right and, and they were really happy and they eventually um well like okay we'll give you another gig another gig we'll see how it goes playing cool mm-hmm. and that was all right but what happened to change everything was i got a gig at pasha in ibiza as part of the bedroom bedlam mm-hmm. win yeah and it was from renaissance with satoshi to mine lord g he was like massive at the time he was like the, the hot person and it was great and dj pippy legendary pippy was playing before me yeah so I went in the booth and I was ready and I'd done a warm-up place, a warm-up set at uh, Bar M, the Manium Shin Bar. Mm-hmm. Then I headed down to Pasha with my mates and it was obviously all all vinyl mm-hmm. at the time. And I just thought people play like this as standard. Yeah, so I just so I, I just went in the booth, assumed, obviously never really done, a, it was the, easily the biggest gig I'd ever done in my life yeah. by a long, long way at that point. Um, and I, I just started and was playing like kind of a tech funk, like roulette sound and tunes and kind of more Latin and just a, a real range of kind of good, good energy, proper house music, but, but the way I'm mixing it is on three decks and cutting this and beats and acapellas. And mm-hmm. there was just one particular moment when I had two copies of this track by Roy Davis Jr. called Rock Shock mm-hmm. from Roulette. And what I used to do, and it's a, it's a classic, actually, it was Roger Sanchez that taught, taught me this. He, he probably doesn't even know. I used to watch him doing it. <laughs> And it was like double beat, you know, you have half a beat behind, so it goes, yeah. doo, 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 mm-hmm. and you create your own crescendo. Mm-hmm. And I was just doing that. Doo, 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 doo. And then I had like another track on a third deck, and it, it was just going nuts, 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 and the room was going off. And then I come off out the booth thinking, well, I'm, I went all right. <clears throat> and it was like 10 agents happened to be there. And I was like, come on, 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 and all those things. Yeah. Sign for me, sign for that. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. So then I kind of took, was like, took me to one side and goes, look, you're going to get a lot of attention now. Be cool. Go and have a good night. And we'll, we'll, we'll speak on Monday. Yeah. It's like, okay, so exactly what I did. Monday morning, the phone call comes from this lady called Amy, Amy Thompson, mm-hmm. who was the, the the booker for Ministry of Sound. And she had a roster with with uh, Danny Tznagular on and Todd Terry and Dave Morales. And mm-hmm. it's like the best roster in the country. Yeah. Trying to be on it, and it was the Ministry of Sound rosters. <laughs> Let me think. <laughs> Could take like half a second. So, so they, they they signed me to the roster, and eventually Amy Amy left and went to set up her, her own thing called Cement, and I went over there. Mm-hmm. So I went from kind of a DJ gig at Pasha in Ibiza to being on easily the best roster in the UK, uh, and then a pretty full diary within a few, within a few weeks. I mean. The bedroom bedroom thing was in December. Mm-hmm. This happened in July, and then I was I, I was kind of getting to go by the September. So it was like ten months from the win to to move, and and then I didn't want to leave Littlewoods even still. <laughs> I was going to gigs the weekends, you know, going to Austria, doing all these things, coming back Monday morning. Mm-hmm. People would say, "How was your weekend?" And I'd go, "Well, 
It's all right, how it's yours. Mowed the lawn. <laughs> you know, so sadly, even though I got a promotion in work in Littlewoods, I got, um, there, was, there was something along the lines of um, a recruitment ban or something. Mm-hmm. And it meant that I couldn't take the promotion, which meant I got made redundant. Oh, what? No so, way. I know. So it was, it was like, shit. Okay, yeah. well, maybe this is the nudge. Mm. And never look back. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, though, even better than that was because I was a size 34 waist and a size 8 shoe and a size 42 chest. Mm. And it was in the catalogue. Uh, they, they used to hire me to come in to be kind of like a clothes horse, not a model, just to stand there and go, okay, there's this fit and all the put pins in it and stuff. Mm. My To get paid to do that was more than my wages. No way. <laughs> so I was only coming in for like two hours a week. <laughs> I get paid more than I was getting for doing a full 38 hours. It's like every cloud. Oh, wow. Yeah. What, and that's, that's, uh, that's your promotion. And, and then the gigs kick, kicked in and mm-hmm. um, and I've been pro DJ ever since. So that, that, that bit was okay. But like you say, the, the nudge, because of my situations growing up, I'm like, okay, this is a steady paycheck here. Yeah, yeah. I can't leave even until, you know, it's it's impossible. And obviously that, that decision was made for me. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and you've never looked back since. I mean, to go from, like you say, within a year, having that full calendar and full, um, full diary, uh, playing mm. all these gigs across the world and Europe and whatever, you know, you were looking at those decks in cream and you were so worried about, getting behind them and the rotary mixer and the floating decks and all that kind of stuff. Um, what what was that first gig like there for you? Was it was it as good as you hoped? Because sometimes, and we've spoken to quite a lot of people and they think that this gig is going to be the one, this is going to be my favourite ever one, and one that I'll always remember and never forget. And then they go and something goes wrong or it's not 100% perfect and it can sometimes be built up too much. I mean, how was it for you? I've flattened the place. <laughs> <laughs> because I, mean, I really did I, I, I got so much local support and it was in a local paper and I guess it was no, before social media so mm. it, you know, there was a good buzz on it and everybody came out to see me and the room was full and I played start to finish I played six hours wow so yeah so th- th- that was the setup that was mm. what Cream wanted the like look we wanted to come and basically bring house music back to cream which which what it was built upon yeah um okay so i played six hours and people had made banners and <laughs> and 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 it was cool with the decks and i was playing completely new music what other people would not yeah. um you know i was i was breaking music into the uk that nobody else had mm-hmm. because what was happening happening simultaneously as well was for some reason because well, cream was like two years into into the nonsense yeah but simultaneously amy who's my manager as well as agent had got me a slot on radio one mm-hmm. so i'd gone from never doing radio before to folding children's underwear <laughs> <laughs> to literally doing a slot on radio one and playing this new music mm-hmm. and because I'd built up like I'd gone to Miami, so I went to music conference and made loads of friends. I was like, "Look, I'm just gonna just go. I don't know how it's gonna work out." And w- when I arrived, all the kind of like West Coast DJs and the New New Yorkers, like Onions and Joski and Doc Martin and uh, Halo and Hippie and all those guys, were like, 
And they gave me all these kind of dub plates and acetates and test pressings of all this kind of music that was not going to be out for like 18 months, two years. Yeah. And I had all just because I played a few bits on Radio 1 or, you know, I was getting behind it or emailing or just kind of trying to get to know them. So, yeah, I started inviting those guys to come play in the annex with me and Cream and giving people like Halo and Hippie the first UK gig and certainly Onions and Joski and, and just started to kind of rebuild the sounds of house which went really well and the, the, the thing at the annex went really well and i think that's when mix mag were like okay what was happening was at music mag i'd be given a column with mm-hmm. carl cox was the champ and i was the contender so every month yeah. I would, they would call me and say what you've been up to and i would just tell them all these like stupid things i've been doing and after parties and i mean i'd literally tell them what i've been up to <laughs> <laughs> You know, whereas if you read Carl's, you'd be like, oh, I've been playing a movement, I've been with Jeff Mills, we'd be talking about this new kind of live show we're going to do. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, we could get off my head, we made some origin costume. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really funny, you know, as in like the, 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 the contrast, but I think that's what they liked. But mm. the point of what was happening was my pro, it made my profile grow and grow and grow and grow. Yeah. And then the major one thing, and then the bringing the music in, and all these record shops up and down the country were like, where'd you get these tunes from? And then Mixmag go like, okay, we have to give them some attention now. Yeah. So what they did, they were like, do you want to do a cover mount CD? And this was 2001. It's called the Winter Warmer. Yeah. Like, okay. So again, they said, just do what you want. And I'd set up my three decks at home, press play and record. And I just did this mix. Um, it, even to this day, it's one of the best mixes I've, I've ever done. They're just I, I hear music in color. You see, I see things in color. Yeah, the synesthesia. Mm-hmm. So just, just the colors in that mix and start to finish, and just the the skill level on it in terms of kind of having two three copies of things. If, if you yeah. really try to dissect that mix, yeah. it's much more complicated than people realize. Mm-hmm. And I was given like new like H Foundation remixes, which which no nobody had mm-hmm. from Soma and his Derek Carter bits and new Master Dean on your on using Joski, which nobody had from NRK and Ian Pooley and did, 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 all these things. Performed mm-hmm. just one mix and give it to uh, Mixmag, and it blew up. Yeah, went absolutely. I mean, it, it would be the equivalent of viral now. Mm-hmm. Everybody had a copy. It was you couldn't go to an after party uh, anywhere in the UK without someone banging this mix on. <laughs> And um, it, it became it became a thing, and I had all these like record shops up and down the country phoning me saying, "Where can I get hold of these tunes?" So I was getting them, I was getting them in touch with Syntax in New York to say these are the distributors. Yeah. So the the West Coast guys, Onions and Joski, and all those guys were like, "Fuck you," you know. And it was getting things were kind of growing and growing and growing. Mm. For me, I was just DJing, being nice, being helpful playing new tunes yeah and that's it and it isn't yeah. the point yet so but yeah so things started to really really cook from, yeah. from that yeah and you know and, and during that era as well that vinyl era it was about you would go and see specific djs to hear them play tunes that only they had it was like yeah. a real badge of honor at that point to be able to have these you know secretive acetates that no one else has got and it's like oh, i saw you know so and so play in this club and they play this track no one else has got it you know if you want to yeah. hear that again you've got to go and follow that dj and that's exactly. you know do you think that's kind of changed in the digital era a little bit do you, or do you still keep hold of special things just for you well a, a bit of both a bit of both because i i like to make sure the music is out there being listened to, yeah. but it's good to have kind of your own specials here and there. My, I've got lots of my own versions of my own tracks, for example, mm-hmm. or things which may or may n- never come out. But 
it's it's a double-edged sword because moving the music forward which is which for me is always the most important part having digitalized everything it gives yeah. it the opportunity to get music kind of made today played tonight mm-hmm. and that's great because i do think for the most part even though it's easy to make music now and distribute it a lot quicker generally the music is a lot better and it's a bit a lot more accomplished yeah does it have the vibe who knows but i think the amount of music being released during the week every week is phenomenal mm. but the amount of effort and time and skill level compared to the producers say then 2001 compared to now it's it's like a day people yeah. are a lot more, a lot more accomplished your average producer it's probably a lot more accomplished than that those were those guys then. Yeah. But have they got the the spirit of the music correct? Mm-hmm. And that overall, especially with so many years in the game now, that's the bit which I think is really important. You know, especially as a label owner, or is yeah. that like AR for myself? Um, finding the spirit and something that makes you go, ooh, that's the trick. And yeah. it, it could be technically perfect is is fine and great, but you know yeah it's all like if something's too perfect or too too like shiny um it can sometimes like you say sometimes it needs a bit of grime it needs to be rolled in the mud a little bit sometimes and you know have that slapdash attitude to to feel like like it has a a bit of spirit like you say i mean so we kind of sidetracked there a little bit you know we're talking about 2002 and that kind of era and that was when you know you set up circus as a club night um, I mean, what was your ethos in kind of setting that up and what did you want to achieve with it? Well, basically, obviously, I was still doing the six-hour sets at Cream and I was bringing all these people through for the first time to the UK and, and the annex was was rocking. For mm. the most part, sometimes it, it wouldn't work. And it was because there in the annex was, was, say, like, you know, super underground, fresh. But then in the other room at Cream was it was like candy kind of hard house trance yeah and it was two completely different things yeah so i was on radio one and then there's candy hard house trance then people like well you know is is that what he does Mm. the reality is i'm over here pumping the underground and breaking new music in the uk for the first time and pushing and pushing and pushing it but people didn't it it was kind of mixed messages yeah as such so i said to cream look even though I don't want to, one of two things is going to happen. I either move on or I start my own night. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, let's just start your own night. Um, we'll get right behind you, come up with the concept. And I was like, okay, so th- this was in Miami, the Shore Club Hotel, just just having a you know, couple of cocktails, me and James Barton and, and Amy, and that's what we decided to do. And then, so we set it all up. And then I, I, I went to a party that night in Miami and it was chaos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was in this penthouse. And there was all these people, there all these like DJs and aficionados. And everyone was wrecked, and it was going nuts, and mm-hmm. people were trying to get in, and it was like whoa, and it was just like a circus. It's crazy. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. I was DJing, and everyone was going nuts, and it was, it was brilliant. So I was like, okay, I'll call it circus. That was cool. <laughs> and then we came, we came back, and we spent months setting it all up and mm-hmm. preparing for it, and all those things. I had the artwork done. I, I designed the logo myself. Had it all prepared and then sadly cream shut. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they opted or the company that had bought them opted to concentrate on Creamfields mm. for the time being, which obviously was a great idea in hindsight. Yeah. And so I was left with, without 
an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Step in my friend who I'd met at Cream. Uh, so I got a phone call. It was on the first holiday I'd had in like years and years and years and years as well. And I got a phone phone call from my mate Rich and he just goes, you know, what's the story like? You know, yeah. you've got a good following in Liverpool. I've got access to this venue. Do you want to just do do circus with me? And I was like, yeah, man. So I spoke to uh, Cream, said it's okay to take, take the logo, my logo. And like, yeah, just do what you want. He designed it. And then we um, decided to start start cream. Sorry, start circus on a smaller scale mm-hmm. at the arts club, the Mask, mm-hmm. in the theatre, um, with Richard McGuinness, yeah. who was my mate at the time. He was the he was the first person to book me for a gig where I had to get on a plane. <laughs> it took me to his place in Northern Ireland, and oh. um, but we were already mates, hanging out, party boys. Mm. Um, so we started circus together, yeah. and I said, "Look, I'll fund it." Or do you want to go halves? And he's like, well, what is it? And I said, well, let's, put, let's just put £500 in each. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. Um, we've been 50-50 ever since. And, you know, he's like he's like beyond brother. Yeah. And so we started and we went to the the mask, as it was called, which is like an old amphitheatre. We literally took out the rest of the seats, did a little bit of production, put a bit of a sound system in. Um, scrappy as you can possibly be, four mm. or five people showed up and it was rocking. It, and it was absolutely brilliant. And yeah, let me haven't stopped. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's been running so long uh, and you must have seen so many changes in terms of club culture, the music, the technology, you know, the crowds and everything. You know, how has that how have you kept yourself fresh and interested through those changes? You know, it's it's often people can want to relive the past and want to keep it like, oh, I want to keep it that way. That's the that's when I had the most enjoyment and rail against kind of things changing. Like, how have you kept it fresh for yourself during this period? Well, I, I think that the one thing I, 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 we've done is even though it's my night and I'm the face of it and all those things, I'm not the headliner. Mm hmm. You know, as in, so it's not like if you look a lot, a lot of other DJ nights, generally, it's kind of no matter what, dun, 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 and then like names underneath. And I understand that if yeah. if you are the main ticket seller, essentially, mm-hmm. and to, to run the business, I've always kind of been, the reality is kind of in the middle, mm-hmm. you know, not, not the kind of warm up guy by any stretch of the imagination, able to, you know, kick it with any DJ in the world. There's no doubt about that. But in terms of like bums on seats, there are bigger names. Yeah. So the the circus lineup, Sarah Circus Nights, have always been about kind of unmissable lineups. Mm-hmm. So because I've been comfortable with being amongst the lineup, uh, I think that naturally leans to bringing in new names every single month. Mm-hmm. So whether it be kind of the, the formula was simple with a DJ, big name, me, new name yeah and a, a couple of when we used to have like a three-room venue you yeah. know breaking people like you know local dice's first uk gig like jamie jones used to be the third room dj for us 200 quid yeah. seth Trotler, people people like this that had never played in the uk mm. even early enough phil like phil weeks mm-hmm. yet so all, all those guys bringing yeah. them into the uk for the first time but at the same time carl cox laurent garnier mm-hmm. you know people like that and um the formula over time has kind of, it, 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 I guess it's worked. Yeah. Even though we're just a one-room venue now, but mm-hmm. it's kind of still the levels we go to to make, we do our best to make the kind of customer experience these days safe and fun and 
excellent. The ethos ethos of circus has always been the same. You know, it's uh, like entertainment and enlightenment, and that means having a great time, listening to new music. Um, obviously, these days it's a, it's more of a juggernaut, if you would like. <laughs> but just then, it was just an excuse for me and Rich to kind of have a party in Liverpool with our mates and get a bit wrecked, and then then have a party in my house afterwards, for two <laughs> days afterwards, which was always the best bit, to be honest. <laughs> But like, you know, DJing in a theatre though, mm. I have to say, it's one of the best rooms anywhere in the world. Yeah. When it connects, because it's on the steps, mm-hmm. and it goes up, it's like a, it's like a tsunami of like energy. Yeah. And it goes out when it goes off. Um, and I've had some incredible nights there. Mm. You know, obviously the 500 essential mix was, was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm. and what was that like, like getting that call? Obviously the essential mix is, you know, an iconic institution in 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 our community um to get that milestone under your name was that quite special yeah i mean because we we, we toyed about booking pete for 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 ages because at the time we'd be like super like you know house house you know and all those things and maybe move around a little bit we didn't know where, where pete sat but he was a friend he was supportive I always placed my tunes on Radio One. I was like, "Look, man, you know, he's a legend in the city as well. It's it's time." Mm-hmm. So we um, we booked Pete, and just and just just by chance, he's like, "Look, the five hundred essential mix is coming up." Bear in mind, he could, like you say, he could have done it anywhere, mm-hmm. at any club in the world, and it would have been an instant yes, uh, because it was like a live broadcast. We were like, whoa, really? And like, he was okay, yeah, this we're going to do it with you because there was so much heat on Circus. We'd already won uh, BBC Club of the Year mm-hmm. and a few other accolades and things. It was like, okay, this is what I want to do. Great, fantastic. So we set it all up, went to kind of the biggest names in the industry. We've been trying to get Richie Horton for years, but mm-hmm. we couldn't quite get him because obviously it's a small venue and economics and all that. Yeah. Uh, but he was down with doing the 500 essential mix. He was Pete. <laughs> And then there was uh, Sasha, mm-hmm. and then there was the online vote for for Aeroplane, mm-hmm. which is the irony that the, Aer- the Aeroplane were with the online vote because the same week the Daisley looked it was that massive ash cloud. Oh right, Iceland. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like I'm not even joking here. At ten o'clock in the morning on the day of the gig, bear in mind that the BBC had been in the in the Liverpool all week putting in the, these ISDN computer lines and making sure the broadcast is live and all mm. these things and reset the venue. 10 o'clock in the morning, we had no lineup. Nobody was in the country at all. And it's like, even actually, maybe even later, maybe two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And I was like, on the one hand, shit. But on the other hand, yeah, I'm going to do a five-hour essential mix. <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of like... Opportunity well, knocks. <laughs> yeah, well, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. And honestly, nobody was coming in. Mm. And just by chance, I got to about five o'clock and we got a, we got a, got a call. Peter got a boat from Calais. So he, he came over and then someone else got a boat from like Rotterdam or something. Mm-hmm. And someone else managed to get like a, a private jet via the other way into South Wales and we got all put by the skin of our teeth, which is a phrase that makes no sense, by the way. But, <laughs> but, but you know. By the skin of our teeth, just as we were opening, everybody got in the country mm. and we just cracked on as if nothing had happened. And yeah, so meant to be. and the excitement and the tension and yeah. it was incredible. We went to shorts at four. Richie Horton still banging the tunes out quarter past five. It's all it's on it's on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. He loved it. Um, everybody did. It, it was absolutely incredible. Iconic. That game was one of the greats. 
Excellent, excellent. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And, um, you know, I want to talk about as well, obviously, you're not only a DJ, you're not only, you know, owner of uh, one of the best club nights out there. You know, it's you're also a producer in your own right. And you've done some albums over the years. And, you know, I just want to talk to you about when you're sitting down to create something and an album, an album in dance music is often difficult to kind of pull off, really, you know, to to create something like that. Often it could be just a collection of singles or whatever. Like when you're sitting down to create something like that in the studio, do you have like a theme and what inspires you and how do you kind of get to what you want to put out? Well, I think to my detriment in some ways, um, when I do an album, I want to make it an album, mm-hmm. you know, and the people are like, Oh, I thought you were a, a DJ and a, you know, producer and label owner. Like, what's, the, what's the story? And I'm like, I'm also a person with like a, a story to tell, mm-hmm. you know? So I think certainly when I did product of your environment, I'd, I'd sat down in a proper studio for literally months, mm-hmm. writing songs, bringing, uh, bringing in musicians, you know, and it was originally meant to be in 7D surround sound mm-hmm. as well. And th- that's a whole different story, which took me down to working with Dolby mm-hmm. on the Atmos project, which was the first person to do do that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we did that and it was just kind of like telling stories and just trying to get off my chest what I had to say at that time as a kind of artist rather than just a producer. Yeah. Uh, and more recently with my last album, about three or three years ago, Nine More Drive, mm-hmm. was designed to be a complete cathartic project. I, I was driving through Crosby where I used to live and we went past my old street and I said, oh, I, used to live, I used to live down there. Yeah. So I, I went down and as soon as I seen the house, I was like, whoa, and all these kind of like heavy mm. memories back and i realized you know that this is shit i'm still carrying around here yeah you know so i went off and just i decided at that moment that i'm gonna i'm gonna write an album about, about the, the times and tribulations and difficulties in, in that in that place yeah so i did so i got to work and started and i wrote maybe 20 20 stories to myself like yeah. small snaps of like situations and then pulled them out and then started making music and writing write lyrics and things around 
those particular stories. Mm-hmm. Not just making a banger, that, that's all right, isn't it? Bit of a sample. Uh, not at all, the total opposite. Yeah. Um, bringing in like musicians and thinking, okay, I want this to have strings. I need a kind of uh, like a sax in this part, or, you know, the whole album was completely sample free, actually. Yeah. Um, that nine more drive one. But yeah, it, it was a deep, heavy, painful, but massively cathartic process, yeah. which took me ages, cost me loads. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm never going to recoup on it. But you know what? In terms of deciding to do something, mm. carrying it through until kind of the blood, through the blood, sweat, and tears into kind of a, a tangible physical project. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that shit. Yeah. You know, yeah. I love being able to kind of say, I'm, I'm going to do something and then do it. Yeah. And then to get an, an amazing amount of kind of support from my peers was cool you know i got what's it called hottest record in the world from from annie mark and mm. it was massively well received yeah in terms of <laughs> as far as it goes these days <laughs> but you know I, I am very proud of that nine more drive project because mm. it was so difficult yeah and it, it did release a lot of well, pain off, yeah. off my shoulders, really, and it put a line in the sand, and it turned what I what was very very difficult to kind of get me kind of absorb historical difficulties into yeah. something that was positive and tangible, and over. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, and to to be able to put that out there, and then like you say, draw that line and move on from it. I guess so. Though in that the Nine More Drive project, I did make it more floor friendly in the end mm-hmm. you know particularly there's one track called i don't understand which is like gnarly synthy it's not funk based but like it's more like techno than than house yeah but i made this amazing video for it mm-hmm. uh have you seen the video that was doing the rounds a couple yeah. of years ago yeah. it was it, it's intense mm-hmm. and you know and, and it's not fun <laughs> it's, it's emotional yeah. you know and obviously I guess when you are on the fringes or your entry level like club culture, mm-hmm. it's just fun. Yeah. It's meant to be a laugh, and I completely agree with that. But I think sometimes if you do something that's a, a bit more challenging, it, it maybe it's not for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, it is an incredible album, and you know, it's certainly got the the reaction, and like say, Annie Matt recognised it as well. And I think, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a brilliant piece of work. And like I have read, you know, in the in the prep for this piece as well, um, you know, you talking about each individual track and kind of how you put that together. And it is, you know, if people dig into that, it is so interesting, and you know, it's so more mean, so much more meaningful about music. Yeah. It's it's um, it's a great journey that you that you've been on. Um, I do really want to talk about, um, you know, your kind of uh, it, during the pandemic era about you becoming uh, a figurehead uh, activist style, you know, whatever you want to call it for, you know, being that voice out there for supporting nightlife and, and, and club culture um, during, you know, those COVID years. I mean, you know, were you surprised at what that brought out in yourself i mean that you became this person and what you know was there a moment that gave you the calling to become you know this adopted spokesperson (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i guess i guess i'm just like sitting over there and on on the chair and like you know obviously covid had kicked in and all that stuff and i was like at first i didn't have lots of money in the bank i was like you know i've got a a year i've got a year and a half you know i'll I'll be all right but then i realized quite quite quickly most of the people i know 
particularly people that work at the events mm-hmm. and the record labels and the surrounding things haven't got anything that they, they work gig to gig to gig to gig to gig and i was like oh shit, well that's not cool mm-hmm. you know surely there's got to be something that we can do so i put out this post on instagram and i i just was sitting over there and i just went okay that's it i'm gonna use my time my energy my contacts my abilities whatever i've got to help you know to see if we can kind of it's this is a call to action i'm gonna be i don't know where i'm heading with this but i'm gonna give it a go mm-hmm. and i said something like troops assemble and it was something along those lines mm-hmm. and it went nuts <laughs> You know, and everyone was like, okay, we're going to get behind you, all those things. And uh, people, there was like thousands of comments and all, all those things. And it was quite exciting. So I started to hear from um, the NTIA, the Nighttime Industries Association. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I speak to Michael Kill. And um, that was the very beginnings of it. Mm-hmm. But then, str- strangely, <laughs> like extremely strangely, within two weeks of, of that post, it was two weeks of the day, I got this phone call. And this guy was like, hold oh, on, this is that you, sir? So I was like, yeah. And he goes, this is the the Lord Lieutenant of Liverpool. And I was like, what is that? He's <laughs> my ignorance, but my fuck is a Lord Lieutenant. And it turns out the Lord Lieutenant, Le- Lieutenant, so that there's one in every major city and they represent the royal family. Right. Okay. So the royal family, as in, in especially Prince William, mm. kind of got hold of me and wanted to have a discussion about what was going down in Liverpool. Because what had happened at, at the time was Liverpool had been put into tier four ahead of anyone else in the in the country. Mm-hmm. And that meant the hospitality industry in the in, in the city was completely decimated. And there's me kind of shouting the odds, speaking to the local council, um, saying that, you know, we need some more, more support and there's going on BBC News already. And, you know, at the very beginnings of this, of this kind of thing. And he wanted a discussion to see what was going on. And it was yeah. not allowed to be like broadcast and it's meant to be like, I thought it was like five, ten minutes. Mm. So we set it up and just in that room in there. And it was like 45 minute, nearly 50 minute conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think the best way to describe it was actually the one thing I said at the beginning of the conversation was, look, what's a story, you know, about how to address him, you know, speaking to his, his PA and like you do a call him, like, look, just call him William. It's cool. Yeah. The only thing you have to do is just give it to him. Don't kind of think you know have to kind of hold back or you know be hold your p's and q's. He doesn't. He's not asked. He just wants to hear what's going on. So myself and another business owner, Natalie, who runs a place called Leaf on Bold Street in Liverpool, mm. both of us were invited for this conversation in the end, and um, we just give it to him. Yeah. Explain what was going on and how much our industry had been decimated locally and then nationally, um, and we give our views and say, can you take some of this to Parliament? And he did. Yeah. You know, so we had this like conversation, and obviously the next day that went nuts. And when it was on BBC News, or it was all over the world and national, international news. Yeah. It's like, okay, shit. So at that point, because of the profile rise, I started getting invited to these like government round tables, which are all like Zoom calls like this, where I would give my advice and other people from our industry would be on them. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to drum up a bit of support with the, the, other, the other DJs in the community and on a, on a WhatsApp, WhatsApp group. But I think I was persistent. And like, I wanted to kind of really like see this through and see where, where we could go. Um, but then I started kind of t- started to talk to Liverpool Council saying, look, surely at some point there's got to be some sort of exit strategy for the events industry because you know, there's so many people. It turns out there's 750,000 people in our industry nationwide 
that have been left with literally nothing because everyone else is on furlough or all these things who've been supported. Yeah. But but we we were not. Um and it was it was it was awful. So simultaneously we were, we were trying to kind of find ways to be 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 supported and I was asking Liverpool Council with business partner, look, we have a venue. Uh, Bramley Moor Dock. We have an amazing company called Tech UK that can do all the production for who we use. It's open for COVID in terms of like it's not uh, COVID. It's not. It's kind of half indoor, half outdoor. Yeah. Um, any chance we can have like an event? And I'm like, oh no, there's just no chance. Forget it. Forget it. And this was like months before it happened. Yeah. Then eventually, after this was before Christmas or something, but then the the, the R rate set, settled down to to one, mm-hmm. and that means basically you're able to kind of trigger the opportunity to to do test events. So because Liverpool did so amazingly well with the mass testing, it was the first in the UK to to have mass testing uh, implemented in the city. And then we were shouting the odds and we had the venue and Liverpool being given the nod by the government to do test events. They were like, okay, let's give uh, Youssef and Richard a shout and see if they're up for it. And we were like, okay. And, And as always with everything that we've always done, it's always a yeah. We'll figure it out later. <laughs> we, we, we had absolutely. We, we were given three weeks' notice mm. to to put on these test events uh, at our own expense as well. It wasn't government. It was government no sanctioned, but, yeah. but not. Um, so myself, Richard, the the folks from Liverpool Council, Matt from the health and safety. Ian Bookham from Liverpool University. Yeah, so there was all sorts of professors and there's people from down the country and the government and on these calls every single day um, leading up to the event to try and learn and understand how we're going to be able to get thousands of people uh, tested ahead of these events and make them safe and how can we how can we pull on the um, the data that's required to be able to yeah. see if we can get beyond COVID. And it was complicated mm-hmm. beyond words i yeah. can't over exaggerate how difficult it was to be, for everyone to kind of get today's page of rules ticked off because tomorrow we're going to be different and then tomorrow we're going to be different and then tomorrow after that we're going to be different and that's the way it went mm. so we just start booking djs trying to kind of figure out how we sell tickets oh by the way you've got to use this government app we're like well, we use skittle but you can't use skittle because they this and we're like what well, this is going to be a disaster yeah and all these kind of um, difficulties we had to kind of deal with mm. and it was absolutely oh, simultaneously you wouldn't believe how much shit I was getting online as well really oh you wouldn't believe it what 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 kind of shit just what the, the fact that you were putting on an event anti-vaxxers yeah kind of you know people saying I'm I'm in, I'm in with the government oh my god all these things I'm yeah. the worst of all <laughs> Was, I mean, like like I say, give me shit. Call me whatever you want. Mm. By all means, be racist if you want. Just don't call me a Tory. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's what we were saying because they were saying it was government sanctioned. But I was like, look, I'm working with Liverpool Council. Mm. You know, and all, all these things. But look, we tried so, so, so hard. And we managed with the full squad um, to pull it all, pull it off. Yeah. And it was magical beyond words. Oh, I mean, when the videos of that came online, that event, and it was like a, a like a warm ray of sunshine, like a tonic, like this is this is happening. This this is happening now. You know, this is back. It was it was hair raising to see the atmosphere in that event 
when it happened? I mean, was it as good as it looked? It, it, it was much better. Yeah. Yeah. It, I've never played a better gig ever. It, it, you know, every single person in there knew the significance of what was what we were trying to achieve. Hmm. Every single person in there, as soon as they walked through the door, left COVID behind for a day. So just the relief on the shoulders just to be themselves. Yeah. Um, so that moment when I played, I played free by Walter Matei and I had this big build-up of my my track when we would be free again and all these things. Mm-hmm. And it was so powerful. Yeah. You know, people, everyone on stage was like literally in tears and people were on the floor out pogoing and pounding the floor and it was Beyond, beyond words. I've never seen anything like it. Um, because it meant so much to so many people to yeah. just be out, out. But yeah, big up to all the DJs for, for coming along and trying to take part. And, you know, obviously we paid everyone, but everyone did it for a reduced rate because of all costs and all these things. And it, it was it was magic. It's yeah. absolutely unbelievable. You know, like I say, everyone that I've mentioned, the uh, Liverpool Council, Map and Health and Safety, Ian Bookham, Rich McGuinness, um, Sam Newsom from our production company, Eddie, our health and safety guy. Everyone, first class. Yeah. And on top of that, all the ravers mm-hmm. for going through the lens that seemed like so, they were completely alien, which became normalized for a short period of time, getting, getting a test before you go into the club and all that. Yeah. Then it was the first place to do it, like anywhere, mm-hmm. like literally anywhere. Um, so it, it, was a, it was a big, big moment. And it wasn't just the UK that was watching. It was every single major news network anywhere around the world were like, okay, let's see what let's see what can can be done. Yeah. And um, you know, it was on CNN, Bloomberg, Australian TV, um, every anywhere. And, you know, I must have done like 150 interviews yeah. leading up to it, as well as trying to uh let's just say I was having a circumstance personal circumstance change simultaneously, but that's a different story. Mm-hmm. So so complicated mm-hmm. um but what was it what was one of the take-homes from it even though it was really successful and you know it got i think eight eight billion interactions online <laughs> in the end which is mental yeah um it was something like that there's this place in liverpool called the spine building mm-hmm. and it's like a new like educational facility essentially near near the educational district in liverpool now because of the aforementioned efforts when myself and Richard and everyone went to, uh, they invited me to come and speak and basically tell their story on this panel one one morning when they were opening the building, like a few months after. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll come along and there was the, all the professors that I mentioned and everyone was kind of really scripted and da, 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 you know, this is how it went and everything was really factual. They got to me at the end and I just stood up and just gave the whole story and it was really refreshing because it was so natural and kind of, you know, they, they loved it. But then I got stopped by this guy called Daniel Elliott Mm-hmm. was at the other end of the room and he goes okay my name's daniel i'm from innova and i'm from the company that set up every single COVID test in the uk i own the pharma company right he goes i was so blown away by watching what you guys did i was he was watching it in his like his home in la or something mm-hmm. and he seen what was happening and it's like okay something's got to change here so he, he got up spoke to his partners in innova and uh, immediately donated 10 million pounds to to the spine building oh, wow. in the uk so daniel elliott he donated 10 million pounds to the spine building on this um after seeing basically me on tv on cnn mm-hmm. to the national pandemic institute 
Right. So he set up he set up the National Pandemic Institute in Liverpool. So anywhere in the country, um, that's where it is because yeah. of what happened on that day. And when I when I was there having that conversation with him, he goes, "Look, I'm going to donate another ten million pounds to make sure that, that, that this this is sustained." Wow. So, so because of the efforts that we all went to that day for the the first dance, yeah. Um, we've now got an, a, a national pan, pandemic institute in Liverpool because of it. It's that is mind blowing. Mind blowing. So all that if you, if you look at the top of this conversation, you know, dicking around in in Liverpool with mates. Yeah. New York is to that moment, which is literally going to help people live for you know x amount of years until it's funded and funded and funded again. Yeah. It's just. It's mental. It is. It is. And like, how do you square that with yourself? Is it? Is it? Is it just hilarious, or is it mind blowing, or is it like it makes you feel proud, or you just can't believe it? A, a little bit of everything, mm. I think. Really, I think that my my main take out of life in general is I just want people to be happy. Mm-hmm. You know, and if this, I think everything I've done hopefully leads to that moment. You know, and if this is going to help people. Like, like I say, I have to make it really clear. My contribution is not, it's not all about me, the, the reason there's a National Pandemic Institute, but I contribute in some small way. Yeah. And uh, for me, that's just incredible. That is going to be something so significant in my city. Yeah. Um, I contribute to it in a small way and it's, it's, and it's absolutely brilliant. That is brilliant. It's perfect. It's perfect. Cool. All right. So we're at the point in the interview where we want to talk about the the perfect playlist so this is the the perfect playlist on spotify you can search it up house culture perfect playlist every single one of our podcast guests has contributed five tracks based on the different themes that we have um the the playlist itself it's you know it's over like it's 30 hours long or something like that it's huge beast it's got loads of random stuff in there loads of anthems loads of brilliant music just put it on shuffle it's incredible um Mm. and you've been great in giving me your choices um and what we want to do is just kind of briefly go through kind of each one uh talking about the um the theme and why that choice of track just kind of popped into your head for to to you know to answer that question so are you i can read out your choices to you okay great (laughs) if that's cool if that works so we always ask for um a catalyst uh a track that got you into dance music and you've chosen um something from Strictly Rhythm and we have spoken to Gladys Pizarro who um, co-founder of Strictly Rhythm on this podcast as well and that's like a really interesting listen um you've chosen um Photon Inc uh, Generate Power the wild pitch mix of that why have you chosen that tune well for me that that is the blueprint of house music mm-hmm. you know as in the way it starts the the bass the, the layers after layers after layers and it's it's got like a journey element to it, and it's dirty, and it's it's got the funk and energy, and it, it lifts and lifts and lifts. And for me, that's how house music should be. It's just it's a groove, mm-hmm. and it's almost kind of progressive before progressive. It's not kind of like like cinematic progressive. Yeah. What I mean is the the music is moving forward constantly, and uh, it's it's so raw and exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it's literally one of the best pieces of house music ever made. Yeah, it's from where it starts, like yeah. you say, every moment there's something being added and added. And if you skip from the beginning to the end, you're like, how did it 
get from here to there. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. guess it's it summarizes this podcast. <laughs> well, indeed, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. So um a floor filler. Um you've chosen a floor plan, uh, never grow old. Why have you chosen that as a floor filler? What's your experience with that tune? Well, you know what I love about it is because I guess like obviously M plants is a super underground label and I guess floor plan are super underground artists. Mm-hmm. So they, they you know really but that tune, it cuts through everybody. You know, it, you, you can probably play that in a in a bar in a full city centre and everybody would go nuts. Mm-hmm. Or you can play a, a, a time warp. And I think because, again, it's exciting, it's colourful, it's got a fat kick. And like I say, it's multi-generational as well. And it's, you know, it's only like, you know, what is it, eight, nine, ten years old now, maybe. Mm-hmm. And it's, it just never, never fails. I don't play it often. But if it was going to play something that i feel is going to nail it that's the one yeah brilliant choice and um, and also it's an, it's an anthem but not it still stays on you know underground yeah yeah it's the, i know what you mean like it's that that's the best type it's yeah so your sunsetter you've chosen um wish you were here by plink by plink floyd pink floyd <laughs> why have you chosen that one well P- pink floyd's a, a, a bands that i've been i've been with since i was kid i used to listen to i used to have to listen to music before before bed every night mm-hmm. and i'd listen to dark side of the moon like regularly mm-hmm. and all pink floyd's music and i guess this is one track that stayed with me I, sometimes a few times i played uh the sunset set at mambo mm-hmm. um which is rare these days and people just bang out there now uh often but then when i was living in ibiza i said like, can i come and you know do the sunset so it's done the way it should be done and that was just one of the tunes that i played and i was playing for like an hour and a half and it's just beautiful watching the music go it's suddenly the sun going into the into the sea as the yeah. music's playing and yeah yeah it's just a it's what is it now 42 years old that track 43 years old yeah unbelievable piece of music and for me interestingly with pink floyd reformed one gig for live eight mm-hmm. i'd been a pink floyd fan, fan my whole life mm-hmm. and um until i seen them live I didn't realize that they're just a blues band. <laughs> Basically, yeah. 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 They're not a psychedelic rock band and all these things and all that. They play the blues. Yeah. Like, so glad I got to see their last ever performance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember watching that live eight performance. It was really special. And they, yeah, the, the set list for that was what you would, would have wanted for like a short kind of set list from those guys. Um Absolutely. All right, so a tearjerker. Um, you've chosen um, Joe Goddard, Gabriel. Um, I love this tune so much. What yeah. a tune! Yeah, it's 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 so underrated as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's. Um, I was looking at the video online only only before, thinking of that that's the video to a record like this. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think it's the tone of of the voice yeah so uh ethereal you know it's beautiful textures and kind of high sharp notes to the voice it's just beautiful i speak to my friend about it the other day when uh dan ganesia played it last track of back to basics once mm-hmm. one more tune one more tune everyone's going nuts and leads then he dropped that you know on like dub plate or something yeah. early doors never really what is that <laughs> and it's one of those things what is that yeah you know yeah i'm gonna stop playing 
Yeah, yeah. It, it, so it's that, like you say, it stands out as well. That that voice on it is is so unique, and it's so it's so spacious as well. Yeah. The track. Yeah. So I mean, you say you can start playing it out again. This leads us on to the the next uh, one, which is the last tune. Play one more tune. You know, the crowd are asking for one more. Your answer is great because it's like it depends on, um, like the event dictates what you're going to play and completely understand that which is great and you know it's so many times going through this playlist people are like our oh, floor fillers are different things for different people is it like a warm-up tune that gets people on the dance floor is it something that throws every, everyone's hands in the air you know what's the difference with that whereas with this last tune you know if the event's going to dictate it how and you know you're going to play a last tune or close close out the event how are you thinking what's your thought process coming up to that point do you start like th- is it just in the moment where you pick that last tune or do you do you know where it's going to go and you're like, right, I've, I'm planning the perfect one for this? It, again, it really depends because if, if you're in, like, say, Argentina or something and they want to have it last tune, you know, you can play something that's really high energy. And I think I, I like people leaving broth at the mouth where possible. <laughs> you know, I, I, I love that. But on the other hand, sometimes it's better to play something that's more... Um, emotional or poignant mm. there's this Henrik Swartz mix of of um of Roachford work it out which has stayed under the radar somehow mm. and it's incredible it's like one of the best remixes it's a vocal record I never leaves my box it's amazing so often after a high energy set I'll play that and let people let people leave on a kind of more satisfied note um, I, re- I do remember once, though, after playing Space in Ibiza, um, I think it was me and Laurent Garnier, and I was closing out in the main, in the main room. And again, there's videos online of this, and it was going off, and I had the room absolutely going nuts. And it was must have been a Wednesday morning, because it was Tuesday night Space. Mm-hmm. And what was it, 8 in the morning at least? And I was, like obviously you can see the sunlight coming through the, the fire doors and stuff. It's like, okay. So I just risked it, and I played "Lovely Day" by Bill Withers, and and you know, I, I knew what was going to happen. Some people are going to leave like that, mm, mm-hmm. and some people did. Yeah, the people who stayed, which was you know about eighty percent of the people, were it was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll never say that word either. It just was just was. Yeah. And they left feeling great. Yeah. And they went off and had a lovely day. And that's it. And yeah, when those doors open and the sun comes through and you're singing that song together with your dance floor brethren at that time, yeah, yeah what a moment. It was. And, you know, and I've got um, lots of tunes I like to play last track, but usually it's something that makes people feel something. Perfect. And this leads us to our final question for the podcast which is um you know we are um house culture you are part of the club culture community you've done, we've talked about your career you've done so much achieved many things and you know made an impact in ways that you never even thought possible um you know what does club culture and house music culture mean to you um you know what apart from everything aside from everything that we've already talked about what what does it what does it make you feel and what does it bring you in your life well i i think for me the one most satisfying part of it is the fact that it's now more or at least as impactful if not more than any other genre of music to ever show up in in mankind Mm -hmm. i thought when it started that it was going to be it would have a shelf life maybe like disco yeah, you know, even though disco kind of floats around, 
But it's not. If you, I mean, if you, if you listen to any of the top twenty records, we stripped them back. They're really house music tunes, really, mm-hmm. uh, pretty much give or take a couple. So the fact that electronic music is here permanently, and the culture is so vast and so wide mm-hmm. and so perpetual, it's fantastic. I think sometimes I get confused with the difference between people feeling the way I felt and feel about it in terms of really taking care of its own of, of the culture and how you made made you feel originally mm-hmm. because it's it's so as you mentioned earlier it's so quickly transitional these days and mm-hmm. it's so easily accessible and that kind of effort to try and find a tune doesn't really exist anymore you know you would go to a record shop and search a town for weeks mm-hmm. And eventually hear someone, hear someone playing it in a club and that would be the moment and digging and all those things are, are not quite there. But they're replaced by much more quality, much more exposure. And because of that exposure, um, it means that the culture's here perpetually, like I say. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I have warm feelings about the fact that I've been doing this in my job for 20 plus 20, shit, man, it must be 25 years. Now, um, I give what it's coming up to. Mm. Um, so that's not bad. That's, not, right. <laughs> that's not bad at all. And I think from a personal point of view, even though I'm, I'm, I've chosen to kind of ease off touring a little bit for the minute, for the minute um, because obviously I've got two young children. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to stay healthy for them. I want to stay healthy full stop. Uh, being on the road is brutal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I stopped partying years and years and years ago. Mm-hmm. But to give to keep my enjoyment of what what I do, um, I make sure that I take what I need from it, mm-hmm. but whilst constantly contributing uh, to the scene best I can. Yeah. Like, which it's I think really important that people realise that if you want to be like a lifer in this industry, you need to give to it, not take. That's a brilliant final thought. I think. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. That's perfect. That's awesome. Thanks for the opportunity. I, I appreciate it. House culture. Well, I hope you guys appreciated that one as well. I absolutely loved chatting to Yusef. I think it was great to hear his genuine passion for our scene permeate that entire conversation. Definitely one of our best episodes, I think. Now, if that has enthused you about the man, you can go and catch him play at Rituals in London on the 30th of April, 2023. Tickets are available. And if you're lucky, he might even drop his absolutely slamming new single, The Return, which is out now on Abode. It's also available from all of the usual outlets. Whilst we're talking about fat beats, make sure you get yourselves tuned into the House Culture Perfect playlist on Spotify. You heard Yusef drop his choices into what is now an epic selection of supersonics that is now over 30 hours long. So stick it on shuffle, turn it up loud, and you might even hear both of Yusef's last tune choices, which were the beautiful Henrik Schwartz remix of Rochford's Work It Out, the absolute stone-cold classic of Bill Withers' Lovely Day. Just imagine what that must have been like hearing that in space as the sun had just come up. And whilst you're on Spotify, you can now leave us a comment on this episode in the Q&A section just under the episode description on your mobile. So don't be shy, get in touch. And if Spotify isn't your thing, you can also leave us a review on Apple. Get in touch with us on our Instagram page at HouseCultureNet. We always love to hear from you and we'll give you a shout out on a future episode if you have something nice to say. This time I'd like to say a big hello to Marty OMR on Instagram who said that 
after listening to our episode with Judge Jules that she was at Gatecrasher back in the days that the judge was reminiscing about and she had some good times. Didn't we all, Marty? But will always be with us. So this is the very end of the episode. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at HouseCultureNet and to follow the hashtag TrueHouseCulture to keep up with all the goings on in the world of house music. And if you want to get in touch with me directly, you can also do that on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. Rave safe. See you next time. House Culture.